Okay, today we're digging into GraphQL. GraphQL is not supported by one single company, but a foundation of multiple companies. And it's been responsible for multiple unicorns as well. I think the two that come to mind are Apollo GraphQL and Hasura, both of which are now unicorns. There's a pattern I really like here of see a problem at scale at a big co like Facebook, solve it and in an internal infrastructure team, open source the solution and find that a lot of people like it. And then basically Lee and the other or GraphQL founders didn't take the last step, which is spin out into a separate company that then takes use of your credibility as the project's creators to provide the production ready framework for recommended usage of this protocol. And if there's one thing that's true about standards that get adopted is that standards are usually underspecified in order to get adopted. I find that true of Temporal where I work, but also GraphQL, basically because these infrastructure tools are always built under the assumption of the existence of other infrastructure that is already at present at the big company. And when it leaves the big company, then you don't have that infrastructure and then you have to go rebuild it. But rebuilding that infrastructure can provide a massive opportunity as a hosted company or a hosted solution. GraphQL, for better or worse, did not do that. They did a very community-based open source approach. And Lee actually says at the end of this clip that he's very happy for that, that he outsourced the idea, but not the implementation. And he doesn't want to maintain that code. So it's a good choice for him. But there could have been a lot of money left on the table because he chose to work on other things at Facebook and Coinbase. But that's up to him. So it's been almost 10 years because we started the effort that became GraphQL in early 2012, so um, 10 years ago, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, at that point, GraphQL actually didn't feel like the the wild part of, of that adventure. Um, the wild part was actually rebuilding our iOS app. So at the time, um, our iOS app was awful. <laughs> it was really bad. Uh, the, the core technology layer, and I'm definitely uh, partially, if not primarily, to blame for this, um, the core technology stack was a wrapped web view in a native shell. Um, the native shell would do all the things that you could really only do natively that there wasn't a web API for. So if you needed to bring up the camera to take a picture, um, or we had just just launched this uh, thing called places where you could you know check in. Remember when you'd go places and check in? Um, like those are all powered by, by native code. Um, but the rendering layer was entirely web-based. And you know, bet was really this this idea that, you know, when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone, he was like, you know, it's a communicator, it's an internet device. And if you want to build an experience for it, it's you just build for the web. Like you couldn't build apps for the iPhone when it first came out. You could only build websites. And, you know, shortly after that, Google kind of was hot on their tails with Android and Android phones. We thought like, all right, Google, like the internet company number one, you know, they make this brand new Chrome browser. So uh, my bet was that these companies were going to go head to head and compete on web rendering technology on this new mobile platform. Uh, I was super wrong. <laughs> That's not what happened. They, they instead actually really crippled their web platforms on these, um, on these OSs and instead leaned into creating uh, the walled garden that, you know, we really have today where, uh, natively run apps that only work on these platforms and you know it is what it is so we had gotten pretty far down this road of of you know betting on web as a common ui stack that would work portably across mobile web if you hit it in a browser on any platform versus within the core of this ios app we had a similar one that was within a core of the android app 
um, with this idea of, you know, Facebook is a, or meta now giant company, but at the time was not a particularly huge company. There, there weren't that many product engineers and mobile in general was kind of new. So you would go to these teams that were super focused on building a desktop site and say, Hey, we really need you to ship mobile product. And they'd be like, uh, okay. Yeah. Like what does that entail? And you're like, well, you got to build a mobile web version and a feature phone version and iOS version and Android version. They're like, all right. So you're not talking about building one extra thing. You're talking about building five extra things. Yeah. No, thank you. We're not going to do that. Um, and we were kind of really caught in a, in a really tough situation pretty late in the game when we realized that we were behind on just straight up product coverage. There were plenty of features that just did not exist on mobile. The ones that did were low quality. Um, app speed was bad. Crash rate was really high because it turned out using the web stack as a rendering layer ate a lot of RAM and these older devices, they just didn't have that much RAM. And rather than gracefully, um, Inventing stuff in the background, they would just hard crash. There were just showstopper bugs. You'd try to do some animation, and the animation would just lock, and then the whole browser stack would crash. And it was just unviable. Um, and I think at some point, Mark Zuckerberg um, was in some interview, and someone asked him about this like, mobile strategy being off. And he said, betting on HTML5 was like the number one the worst mistake that Facebook had ever made. <laughs> and my, me and my team were like watching and be like, oh, oops, that's us. That was our fault. Uh, we, are, we are the number one mistake that Facebook ever made. Um, so really the big bet was this idea that we were gonna rebuild a mobile, mobile app from scratch. And um, at this point, in part because of the strategy that we had taken to invest in the web, but also in part just these platforms being new and recruiting being hard, we just didn't really have that many iOS experts at the company. We had a couple. I think we had maybe three or four at that point that we would have considered ex really experts. And that meant, since the platform was new, these were Apple engineering experts. Like they had been writing Objective-C forever and the iPhone was new for everybody, um, but they had already understood, understood how to build for that platform. Um, we had a few of those. We were starting to train people within the company on how to do this. But um, we needed to kind of double down, triple down on this. So we started a brand new app and we decided that we were going to start with one feature that was going to be newsfeed. That was the very first thing you see when you open the app. That was going to be purely native, no web technology anywhere. And, and then there was going to be a compatibility layer that bridged out into all of the existing stuff that we had already built. So all of the existing features would still be there. This would give us the ability to ship iteratively. We could ship a native um, experience uh, uh, newsfeed, and then piece by piece, we could move more and more things onto this new technology stack. So um, we spun up this group of engineers and said, hey, um, go build a prototype, something feasible in the next three months. And they did this. This was very, maybe late 2011 or super early 2012. Um, and they did this, they came back and they said, hey, you know, we've got this, this app, we think it's good. We think it's actually probably ready to ship. And I took a look at it and I noticed that it was missing a bunch of content in the newsfeed and said, hey, okay, this looks great. But like, when are you going to get these other kind of story types showing up in the newsfeed? And they're like, what are you talking about? All the story types that come back from us from the API are here. And then like all of a sudden I had that moment you know, where like the blood rushes out of your face. And you're like, what API? Because we, we just like completely, of course, missed this. And everything is web technology based. There is no separation of concerns. Like there's just one big ball of code back there that talks to 
databases and services and does business logic and it bunches it all together. And its output is HTML. In fact, there was backend systems at Facebook at that time that literally yielded you blobs of HTML that you're supposed to interleave into the rest of another page, uh, which was kind of frustrating for other reasons if you're trying to build something for mobile because they would stick desktop CSS in there and you'd have to figure out how to fix it. Um, that there was no concept of like a data layer abstraction. That was not really a thing. Except for the fact that there was a like a, a software-based data layer. So not an API tier. Like typically today we would think about these are services, whether it's like a database level service or a high-level data service or even a GraphQL API or REST API, you you yield them some requests, whether that's over a GLPC or HTTP or whatever, and it comes back to you with data in some form. Um, that's not what this was. This was like kind of like an ORM, like within the runtime of the server would be these uh, these PHP objects that would describe every kind of thing that existed within the Facebook Facebook ecosystem with getter methods. And we had just started in on this path um, to what has now the, been the hack language for a long time. At that point, it, it, it was still kind of finding its name. It was brand new. But the one feature that they had added early on was uh, async await, which at the time was really novel. Um, I think C Sharp was the only other language that had this. That's where we borrowed it from. Um, and that feature was taking the code base by storm. It, it, there was a, a massive sort of um, performance and speed effort that was being run sort of um, orthogonally to all this happening. And so anyway, we found ourselves in this situation where the iOS app, a brand new iOS app from scratch was getting built. It was consuming these APIs that they had found that actually what they were were three or four year old APIs that had been built as one-offs for some partner integration and then abandoned. And they were just ancient and missing stuff and slow. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. We, we absolutely cannot ship to production on this. we got to go build a new thing. And, um, and at the same time, we had uh, these ORM-ish objects. Um, they were called ENT, E-N-T, uh, for entity, uh, inside the, the, the data layer um, or inside the, just the application code at Facebook. And we thought, okay, really what we want is we want to take this you know, ORM-ish ENT framework uh, that actually lots of people really enjoyed using. It was a very well-built um, well built abstraction. But we wanted to be able to access it from iOS code in the same way that a, a PHP engineer would be able to access it from within the big ball of PHP code. And you can't just do that, right? Like, you need to be able to go back and forth across the network. And so we said, all right, well, how does this thing work? And, um, you know, what are its core primitives? And Really, the single biggest sticking point was this idea that Ent and being part of the backend system had had it was it was not afraid of going back and forth from the database multiple times. You know, if you needed to say, "I need to load all of this person's friends," great, done. Okay, now I also need their profile pictures. <laughs> great, just go back again, get more data, no problem, because you're talking about requests within a data center pretty fast. We, we didn't want to do that from an iOS app because, you know, even these days we would consider that probably poor design. Um, but back in 2012, you're talking about really slow 3G networks where it's not just that the bandwidth is slow, it's the latency is slow. Multiple seconds per round trip. So if you have to go back twice, you're talking about changing a page's load time from 
three seconds, which would would have been considered fast at the time, to six. (laughs) And if you have to do two or three layers of first I load this, then I load B, then I load C, um, it's really easy to end up in the tens of seconds to load a screen, which would have put us right back where we started with the mobile web-based thing we were trying to replace in terms of performance. So we needed to come up with a way to um, keep the programming model that we liked from this ORM layer called Ent, but uh, leave the back and forthiness of how it worked under the hood on the PHP side and not in the iOS side. And um, it turned out that there was this experimental API that we had been playing with on the Ent side called Ent Loader, which was the ability to declaratively state the relationships between data that you wanted so that uh, this basically a query scheduler under the hood could figure out how to do the most performant thing with the ents under the hood. And we thought, great, how about we just, you know, write something that can directly translate to building an ent loader on the fly. So we wrote a little piece of code. Um, my co-creator, Nick Schrock, wrote that. He called it SuperGraph. <laughs> and the idea was that you would have... Um, the first version was uh, the parser was a bunch of regular expressions. You know, it, it was was not pretty, but it was a very it, he he. It looked like PHP code. You know, imagine taking all of the features away from PHP except you know dot method and then a parentheses. You know, it's like that that syntax was the only thing that remained, um, but it was just enough to mirror the code that you would have written in PHP to write that loader ent loader sort of dependencies of the data that I need. Um, and then so he would write that, he would parse it. He would, uh, you know, you just send it as a string to the server. It gets parsed on, on the server as a string uh, to intermediate data structure. Uh, that then sort of on the fly builds one of these ent loaders, runs it, takes the data, and then sends it right back to the client. Um, this was sort of prototypal GraphQL. That was early 2012. So we put this in front of the mobile engineers and we're like, Do you, is this useful? Is this helpful? And they were like ecstatic. They're like, this is insane. This is amazing. Um, yes, this is absolutely what we need. And at the same time, um, I was not working on the project at the time, actually. I, I was sort of knee deep in trying to get these iOS engineers focused on the right things. Um, I was taking a different angle at the API problem. Uh, the, the thing that stood out to me was uh, all of our API technology at Facebook at the time was sort of one layer deep. You couldn't ask for dependencies of, of data. And there was no typing information. You just sort of hit an endpoint. You got a big blob of JSON back. And uh, the the point that I jumped to was uh, these RPC languages that all were based on a firm type system with relationships. And they're self-describing. And there was auto-generated documentation. I was like, that's where we want to be. We want to be where gRPC is or where Thrift is or Protobuf or Captain Proto. Like that technology is where we want to go towards. Um, And so there's this magical moment where... Nick Strock, who had written the SuperGraph prototype, and I had this sort of like insane three thousand line uh, uh, prototype of a a newsfeed API, all written as a Thrift document, with no idea of how I would actually translate that into something that would work. We're like, what if we put these two ideas together? And that's what we did. So we 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 built um, a version of SuperGraph on top of newsfeed. Um, our other co-creator uh, Dan Schaefer got involved. He was on the newsfeed team and uh, was able to sort of make sure that the pieces on the PHP side would work the way we wanted them to work. 
Um, and that was the origin. It, it worked. We, we did a lot of iteration on the syntax to get into a state where the iOS engineers kind of understood what they were looking at and not just like fake PHP code. Um, and that unlocked our ability to, sh- to ship that app. In, in late summer 2012, we shipped a version of the Facebook for iOS app that was a completely native newsfeed that was entirely powered by GraphQL. And it loaded very complicated newsfeed endpoints in two and a half seconds. Um, it was pretty incredible. And uh, right after that, it, it started to expand like wildfire. We had teams sort of like pounding at our door saying, this is super cool. How do I build for your iOS app? I want to add a screen to the iOS app. But also like this GraphQL thing is interesting. Like how can I use it? Um, and we, it was, there was enough energy around that that we decided to create a, a whole team around that. So we actually, we created the GraphQL team um, in early 2013 sort of in response to that demand and kind of the rest is history. That's such a cool origin story for technology. And I guess at this time, there were no bells and whistles. It was pretty much like a JSON schema and there were no data loaders or anything at this time. Is that roughly correct? Um, there were. So I think what, and this is part of the reason why I say that the GraphQL, well, I think that's the piece that has longevity from this effort. Um, although the, the iOS app, today is still the same code base origins as that effort. So that, that has certainly lasted this long. Um, but the, the reason why we were able to build something in a matter of a couple of months was we were standing on top of many years of work. Um, that Ent framework, which was also originally authored by Nick Schrock, who was the one who uh, came up with the Supergraph concept, he had been working on that for close to three years at that point which started as a, a very, very lightweight thing, just you know, noticing common patterns and how people were doing data access and trying to build an abstraction around that. And then encountering sort of problem after problem after problem that this thing could solve. So um, we early on in like maybe 20, 2009 or 2010, the dominant problem that we faced was access control. Uh, we would, you know, the old model that we would use is you would write one, uh, set of business logic that would determine whether or not a particular person was allowed to see a particular piece of data. And then if the answer was yes, then it would fall through to the next piece of code, which would actually then go load that data and get it back and put it in the appropriate place in the screen. And it was just way too easy to make a mistake. And you know, one subtle bug in that first piece of logic, and it falls through and it loads that data. And um, lo and behold, people write bugs sometimes, and it was it meant you would have to unit test every single place where you would access data, which you know we had some, but also tests only test what you write them to test. So there would be things where we thought our test coverage was good, but something still would kind of slip through the cracks. So um, that was another thing that we added early on. There was um, the ability to to describe access control rules that were tied to the type of data itself rather than to the place where that data gets used. So you actually cannot load that data without first running the access control rules. Um, and another was the the load, loading efficiency. So the reason why you never heard us when we talk about GraphQL, talk about query planning or anything like that is that Ent infrastructure had you know, dynamic query planning built into it because it's at some point long before we built GraphQL, uh, this idea of, hey, 
our CPU and memory usage on our servers is way higher than we want it to be. And if we need to continue to scale and grow as a company and have more people use our services, then we have to be loading data as efficiently as possible. And so the, the th thinking of what can you do in parallel, uh, what truly depends on what, so that you, you never want to wait to load you know, data B if it doesn't depend on data A. If it, there's no dependency there, you should start loading it as soon as possible. Um, that gets more complicated when access control rules themselves often require loading data. So you get this thing where it's like, can I see this picture? It's like, well, I don't know. Does, has the author of that picture blocked you? Oh, I got to go load the author of that picture. And then I have to go load all the people they've blocked to see if that person is in that list. That's business law. That's arbitrary business logic. That's additional data fetching. All of that has to get factored into that query planner. So like, these are just a handful of many examples of things that are built into that, um, that piece of infrastructure. And even that, that final piece, that idea of like, actually there's a really high level API that sits on top of this that allows you to sort of assemble uh, a high-level query plan that says these are the high-level pieces of information I need. This is actually the subset that I really care about. So you can get a nuanced understanding of dependencies, um, and then here's what to do once that data is loaded. And that's that's what GraphQL ended up being built on top of in the first place. And then I think a lot of the the work um, both within Facebook uh, in, the, in the years after we originally built that, but then even more so after open sourcing was unpacking all of that, like coming to an understanding of just how much was in this underlying ent layer that we were reliant upon, um, that we needed to at least be able to tell the story about to people who are using GraphQL. And I think a happy accident of that is GraphQL is left in a very agnostic state towards these kinds of problems, because all it is is a mapping layer between essentially arbitrarily run compute on the server. It, it, it translates on the server side to calling functions in some particular order. And those functions can return, you know, a promise or a task or whatever your async primitive is, but that's it. Like there's no concept of data fetching. There's no concept of query playing. There's no concept of access control. Um, not to say that those aren't important. It's just that it, it, it's allowed to be agnostic to them. So some layer underneath can do it. And that was a happy accident because that's just happened to be what our technology stack looked like at the time. So you create a system that doesn't have too many things attached, but you create a plugin system so you can easily include things like authorization. And you just didn't need data loaders at that time because Ant did all of that for you. That was, you know, we, we at first I didn't think open source and GraphQL was going to be a good idea. Um, we were kind of pr pressured into it by um, another team, the Relay team. So the Relay team had built this really cool integration between GraphQL and React and had just watched React open source and saw how sort of wildly popular that was. We're like, wow, that was really cool. We should open source Relay. And they're like, well, no open sourcing really makes no sense if GraphQL isn't also open sourced. And so they came knocking at our door and they're like, would you guys ever consider open sourcing GraphQL. We're like, well, you know, it's kind of complicated and it's really kind of tied to all this Facebook specific technology. Um, they eventually convinced me I, and that's what kind of led to the, um, the effort to open source it and not just throwing code over a wall, but really this kind of this idea that if we gave people a big ball of PHP code, like they probably look at us like we were crazy and not use it. Um, and so instead it was, we kind of generalized it away from that and made something a little more consumable for a, um, 
a reference implementation. But as soon as we had done that, immediately start hearing about the problems that people would have of, hey, how do you do X or Y? Or, hey, my my the server that I built is really, really slow, and I'm trying to understand why. Um, how did you go about solving this problem in GraphQL? And of course, the answer was always, well, we, we didn't solve that problem in GraphQL. We, it, it was solved for us at some lower level, but that's kind of what led us on this journey of, in working our way down the stack of abstractions that tie together and make sure that we were telling the story of those, even if they weren't open source themselves. Um, part of the way that we would do that is for companies that were really early adopters, um, we would go visit them, especially if they were Bay Area companies. So we would have a meeting at Intuit and a meeting at Pinterest and you know a meeting at a handful of these places um, that were experimenting with this early on. Just to hear them out, hear what their infrastructure looked like, hear what their early experiences were like, and uh, started noticing common problems that were surprising to us. Things that felt like, you know, not where we would have expected the bulk of, of the work would be. And like, oh, that seems like an obvious thing to solve. But as we would describe how it was solved for us, um, it was non-obvious. It was only obvious to us because we had been staring it in the face for so many years that it, it seemed like, of course, that's the way that you would do it. But um, this kind of goes back to the, you know, when we had done this transition to own the, the programming language, we were building this hack programming language. And this very, one of the very first features was the async await. Uh, very few other runtimes had this kind of mechanism. And the, a lot of our abstract data abstractions were really based on, on this idea of having an async primitive. And you go talk to all these other shops that are built in Ruby or Python or Java, and they don't have that runtime primitive. And so they end up with very different architectures. And as we would describe how ours worked, like you'd see people light up like, whoa, that sounds really interesting. And they started kind of jamming about how they might go about building that themselves. And um, even still sort of stuck in the mire of the complexity of their existing stack and so Dan Schaefer and I would do these tours. We would go to go to these companies and kind of do the road public road show for GraphQL. And uh, one day after visiting Pinterest, uh, we had sat down with I think maybe twelve engineers from their um, product infrastructure team, and I, 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 like again heard repeated things like, "Wow, this is the third time we've heard someone talk about this problem." And the the answer seems so simple when we said it out loud. Uh, and of course, we'd never really thought about extracting this one piece out of the big, you know, depth of complexity of our own abstraction layers. But it felt easy enough to talk about that surely there was like one little piece here. And we literally like we left um, that meeting at Pinterest at like 2.30 and walked down the street in Soma in <laughs> San Francisco, which is where their office was, uh, into a coffee shop and and literally opened up our laptops and started writing code. and. Um, Dan started writing unit tests and I started writing implementation and he was just like, it should work this way. So he was like building an API and writing tests against that API. Um, and I was coming up with the runtime model that would work in JavaScript. And by, you know, 6 PM when the coffee shop was trying to kick us out because they wanted to close, we had something working that was passing all of our tests. And it was just a matter of like writing documentation for it. Um, and I, I think I spent the next week at work writing documentation. So like it took us, you know, like maybe three hours for the meat of the, the technical implementation and then another week to finish it up. Um, 
And that was Data Loader. And it's got a little bit of iteration since then. But yeah, that was like a week of work. But it's that that's not a not a direct translation from PHP code at Facebook. It was more a distillation of uh, a technique that was used in a handful of cases. Um, and and that's also been helpful, in, in especially the, the approach of saying, you know, I want it 10 times as many lines of documentation as as code. Um, and I think I, I recorded a video about it as well, just like explaining how it worked. And now there's like data loader equivalents written in you know, like 20 different programming languages. And like, that's exactly what I hoped <laughs> happened. Like couldn't have hoped for a better outcome is people stole the technique, not the code. It's like, great. I don't want to maintain the code. I want to like get the technique out there. Um, and people have leaned on that as a way to power the GraphQL engines in the same way that we did early on at Facebook. Certainly not the only way. And, and again, you know, GraphQL is built in a way that's agnostic. You can power it in lots of different ways, but um, certainly a very viable one that worked quite well for us at Facebook and seems to be working well for plenty of other people. So I really like the Ent story. I like the data loader story. And I think Lee gets better every time he tells the story. So this is the most recent iteration. He's been doing this for maybe four to five years, publicly speaking about GraphQL so far. And I just enjoy learning about it so much because this is one of those examples of very successful infrastructure at a big code that's been open sourced. And I think that this will happen again and again and again. And if you can spot it right, you can bet on these technologies with relatively high certainty. And that's extremely valuable, whether or not you're investing money or time. As a parting gift, I'm leaving one blog post that I found on Hacker News that I often think about when I think about situations like this, which is that you accidentally green spun yourself into something that is probably a fully formed compiler or query engine or database or something fundamental like that. You can definitely see GraphQL going down this path. Uh, the relay compiler is the compiler part and data loader is a very, very small query optimizer. And the other aspects of query planning are being reinvented again with the concepts, for example, of cost estimation in GraphQL. The full episode is really worth a listen, so check out the show notes for all the links. Bye-bye.